0: The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door.
1: So, chapter 14, now that we've discussed the manticore, now Annie has to hunt the manticore. Mm. Here we get to employ some more characters that people might be familiar with from previous Mm -hmm. books. So we have Carl, the swearing soldier with hidden depths. And we also appear to have what seems to be Malloy with a different name, question mark. Carl grounds us in the familiar and Mm. gives Annie someone to contrast and play off against, not unlike, say, the trope of the Lancer.
0: Oh, Carl is so totally a Lancer.
1: Exactly, yes. He he is... I mean, there are different forms of the Lancer that can come into play, but the idea of someone that butts heads with the leader, Mm. in terms of like, I think we should do it this way, or we need to be just being the more not foolhardy necessarily, but more hot-headed companion Mm. to the hero who is level-headed and thoughtful Mm. and able to provide a focus for the reader and everything Mm. like that. The two of them work off each other very well.
0: And I think it works as well as it does because you sort of compare it to the typical companion of annie being frank butler and mm-hmm. like the difference is night
1: and day just yeah. like instead sort of Go- going yeah. from the power couple to just being the person that annie grabbed because of like oh yes i know your name i've worked with you before yeah. but also having them be the oh god you're gonna be put you're gonna be butting heads with me the whole time aren't you mm. <laughs> it's,
0: it's someone who like You have reason to trust them because of like they showed it in at the Mm -hmm. end of Secret Rooms, but it's sort of you're available. Okay, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: we're uh, honestly going to be talking more about that when we get to chapter 17. Because even though Carl is ever present in chapter 14 as being like Annie's go to person and Annie's comic relief as other things develop. The real heart of their relationship gets its work out in that later chapter. Now, more significant, and the the person that takes up most of the talking space in this story is Molloy slash Old Ned. He is not only the bulk of the conversation, or one should say, the anecdote that takes up the meat of chapter 14, but his role in secret rooms, and his role in Arlington have a very different feel to it. I could equivocate here and suggest that maybe Malloy and Old Ned are two different people. After all, I don't want to give spoilers. And yet it seems perhaps silly to try and do that, when the chapter puts so much focus on the fact that there is clearly something unusual at work, and the character knows it that his presence here means something, even if he refuses to admit it or be choked up in a lie. But regardless of the fact that the man's nature is not revealed, she at least understands that his presence means that their roles are similar, and to let the moment play out to see what fruits it will bear. The significance here that I wanted to get into is that Molloy, by and large, was a bit character. In Secret Rooms. They were background verisimilitude. They mm. helped shape the overall idea of what the story was leading into, talking about mythological creatures and surroundings before they even got to the House of Verstecked. Here, the quality of what Old Ned is providing feels more like a ghost story or urban legend. And while such stories can be simple entertainment, they can also serve other roles, such as how old-time myths would explain the unexplainable, or provide a moral lesson, or justify traditions. You may remember past conversations between myself and Toby about how the line between shaman and showman becomes blurred, and this is another example of that. More importantly because Annie is already alerted to the fact that this isn't just any old storyteller. It encourages her to give credence to this tale as a possible means of passing information.
0: Mm. In Secret Rooms, Malloy's stories feel much more sort of general, like, and it, they're listening to them without necessarily a specific goal in mind it's just like, yeah, you you never know what you might turn up listening Mm -hmm. to stories like this in this it's like it's much more targeted uh, what old Ned shares, and so he takes you on a journey that is much more about this is the specific incident and details that you need to know, and Annie kind of wants to get details on her quarry that's the Difference in flavor between the two, I think.
1: There was another thought that came to mind during our original conversation, but unfortunately I had a brain fart, and the meat of what I wanted to say entirely left my head. But based on the fragment of what I said at the time, I think I might have been trying to muse on the reason why Old Ned's story takes up such a huge chunk of Chapter 14. And what I came up with is that it is preparing both Annie and the audience for what comes next. You might have heard the phrase, the medium is the message. When Marshall McLuhan came up with this in 1964, he was referring to the study of media. The idea that the communication medium should be the focus of study, rather than the message of said media. But here I'm using the term a little bit differently. When you're trying to convey a message, there are different ways to do it, and using a specific medium has to take into account the strengths and weaknesses of that medium, not to mention its own inherent tropes and aesthetic. This is why comedy is often used as a medium for profound messages, or warnings, or opinions, particularly if the powers that be might be inclined to sense such ideas if it is offered up to the audience literally. Even for a receptive audience, it's often a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, and that's why shows like The Daily Show and Last Week Tonight are as popular as they are. Here, it feels like old Ned is trying to tell Annie what she needs to know without being explicit about it. He warns that experienced hands were caught unawares, and even though they made good decisions about what to do, they could still not defeat their quarry with only one left to tell the tale, not because they were smarter, or even luckier, but because someone or something willed it. Whether this story is true or not, it speaks not only on the qualities of their quarry, but as to its essential nature. She not only needs to know some of the information that has already been guessed by the mines back in Washington, but she needs to know that when she comes to the end of her hunt, What she faces may not be an enemy she can either prepare for or completely understand. The supernatural hits us below the belt, and this sort of opponent may be unlike any she has ever faced before. If the manticore itself was already a shock to her system, what more might be out there on this new frontier? Old maps used to refer to parts unknown with the term here be dragons. And this story reminds us that in the New Century multiverse, that could very well be literal. We're going to go on to talk about human adversaries in the next couple of chapters, as per the storytelling tropes of a political thriller. But Old Ned tells us that in any story, we aren't going to find a politician or a criminal at the end of the trail. And for now... That's all we'll say on the subject. I'm honestly not sure that there's much more to say about Mm. chapter 14 that is not part of the story itself. Like, obviously, Mm. whenever we're discussing our chosen chapters, they're like, what are there things that we can talk about that will add context to, add thoughts about the story itself? Mm. but. I really sort of feel that chapter 14 does in fact speak for itself in terms of Mm -hmm. not only showcasing a different part of the story as we've already went into in our intro, but also the fact that it isn't just, okay, we're we're relocating the camera to the frontier. Mm -hmm. We're now showing like, okay, we're seeing Annie's hunt for the monster that appeared in order to tell Mm -hmm. us more about all these suppositions and thoughts that people were having in chapter right. 13. We're seeing the continuation of it. Mm. But Malloy's story specifically prepares us for a potential confrontation between mm. Annie and Carl and the monstrous Manticore and its potential master. It is suggesting that we will see a piece of closure to one way or the other later on in the story. But mm. in terms of what can be said about that chapter specifically, really the thing that I wanted to allude to was how Old Ned's story prepares us for a continuation of that part of Arlington.
0: I think it it what the the contents of Malloy or Old Ned's story work as well as they do because as you say, it's building dread for like mm-hmm. the final encounter it is selling us on the danger of this creature. And the story that he relays is like a ghost story or a horror story, but it is specifically a frontier horror story. Mm -hmm. So even though we're having this change of setting with taking the camera to Annie and her pursuit, but it's not like we're doing that. And then we hear a story and that's once again, another sort of genre shift. It's cohesive with the setting that annie is in that like this is a story of what happened what dangers and horrors were found in the woods out in the frontier and
1: it's actually literally the secret rooms setting exactly which includes the wild west stuff in terms of like people shooting them out with guns but Mm. also having to deal with here there be dragons, or in this case, here there be manticores. This is literally a frontier in terms of we don't know what else is out there. Mm. And in this case, some of the threats aren't people. They aren't men with guns. There are monsters out there, Mm. and Annie has to go face them because that is her job.
0: Yeah, Because you hear the specific actions, it's not just a case of men went in that like only one came out mm. which is the basic summary of it you hear the breakdown of what they actually did and how it fell apart and you hear it and you you don't think that things necessarily got played badly they did actually do some reasonable things they were trying their best to survive the night and it makes you question okay so these aren't necessarily a bunch of idiots who like kicked a hornet's nest and then like just s- stuck around gauntlessly and decided to split up. They did try their best to survive the night through practical and reasonable responses to the scenario mm-hmm. they were in,
1: and, and it still it, wasn't enough for the team. It
0: was not enough, and you you've got to ask yourself: Is there a large degree of difference between that set set up and what? Annie might find herself in and Mm -hmm. Annie and Carl specifically
1: now we return the camera angle back to DC Mm -hmm. we are introduced to a variety of different antagonists Mm. in point of fact antagonists that are actually going to be recurring in this story Mm. unlike some of the other things that we have seen thus far in terms of Tremaine Tremaine is important to the story, but as we've seen how he got one chapter and then stuff moved on to other things, he is actually not the focus of this story. Here, Mm. now that we've moved into Act 2, and the issues at stake are how do we proceed into the future knowing that Grant isn't long for this world and we need a good replacement, Who are our antagonists going to be on that front, on the political thriller front? Mm -hmm. So now we're introduced to the Weasley Van Tassel, who wishes he was someone like Tremaine, and Mm -hmm. some of the other people that Sarah interviews are likewise so disagreeable that we don't even see the conversations play out. We also see Fisher and Roach, people that quote-unquote work for van tassel but seem like they might actually be manipulating him as being the face of their interests mm-hmm. and as slimy and reminiscent of mayor buck as van tassel himself is it doesn't change the fact that you know you put you, you take all of those other characters that seem just like people you don't even want to see around and want to see removed from positions of power, much mm-hmm. of the way that we wanted to see Mohawk removed all the way back in mm. Tiger's Eye. That fear, that, that sentiment
0: of just go.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm. What I found on rereading the story, on re listening to the story, mm. the one that bothers me the most is actually McPherson. Mm. And there's a few reasons behind that. First of all, he's once more voiced by Dan Floyd. Mm -hmm. who I think is a is a really good voice actor that I I think that his work in various other spheres lends himself very well to the role of not playing himself but playing somebody else's character. So Mm -hmm. therefore the direction that Alex gave him with this makes him work very well for his part in this story. But specifically in regards to the character of McPherson He may not inspire the loyalty of his followers like Tremaine, and he may not have the backing of a thug like Fisher, but he has a quality of speaking and an ideology that is neither a principled idealist like Grant or even a populist evangelist like Tremaine. He is a man of ideas, but they are ideas that feel toxic in a less obvious way than Van Tassel's appeal to the ways of the old world. MacPherson feels like a man that could convince centrist-leaning or sympathetic people toward a path that might seem reasonable, but it would ultimately be bad for America and Americans. There is a piece of writing that I became aware of in the last ten years, as my activist interests grew stronger. Politicians love to use the words of Martin Luther King to their own ends. And for myself, I understand the issue in a white person like me trying to ascribe interpretations of MLK's words. Therefore, I will let this excerpt from Letter from a Birmingham Jail speak for itself within the context of our recorded conversation. I must confess that over the past few years... I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion. That the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the negro to wait for a more convenient season shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will lukewarm acceptance is more bewildering than outright rejection of course MacPherson isn't setting himself up as being in opposition to thomas and sarah's desire for civil rights his ideas speak more to the people of privilege about keeping said privilege at the cost of others it's just that those others are often minorities his language is filled with political euphemisms that disguise his intent and the danger in what his goals mean for those with the least intrinsic power he wields the problematic fantasy of america by using words like bootstraps and has a quality to him that feels like he could appeal to the same kinds of voters that would vote for Grant. And therefore, he's a safe option, quote-unquote, that isn't actually anything of the kind. I'm less scared of Fisher and Van Tassel because I know what they are. But they are unable to disguise themselves. And McPherson feels more like what someone might refer to as a Quisling someone that can inhabit a space and seem like a good idea when in fact he's nothing of the kind and honestly i wonder if that is even a component of why sarah is disturbed as she is when she talks later on about being impressed by him it's one thing to be able to craft a message that gains popular support because it caters to the basest illogical impulses of the ignorant and fearful. It's another, to be able to have a conversation with someone that makes that person feel like there is a mind behind their words, and therefore can convince people to vote for them, based on the belief that that person has the better idea.
0: Mm, Hmm. I think there might be something to that. To be completely honest... McPherson got under my defences in that I didn't necessarily find him immediately disagreeable or obviously troubling like the many other odious people present in these chapters. He actually engages with Sarah Arlington in a manner that feels like he's speaking with her, whereas many of the others we see are projecting their stances, politics or worldviews onto others or Maybe the more appropriate word is inflicting those views onto others because of that sort of he's actually engaging with Sarah in conversation. It means that we're more inclined to hear what he has to say, give it a chance. And after we hear enough of it, we start to feel the opposition and troubling cleverness behind it. He's not necessarily insidious in that he's remarkably plain speaking, but the point that makes it clear that this man is one of the greatest dangers is how the segment ends. You were talking about Daniel Floyd earlier, and he performs this wonderfully. He's a remarkably earnest personality in his own work, Daniel Floyd I'm talking about here, and in what we have seen Daniel Floyd perform in the one or two other roles that we've seen in New Century up to this point. So to have him play someone who you are open to hearing out only to find that they don't necessarily have our best interests at heart is immensely uncanny, and as I alluded to a moment ago, he closes the scene perfectly. After Sarah has heard him out and attempts to end things on amiable terms by wishing him the best with his pursuits, even if he will not be working with them. McPherson slips in a sort of one last thing. He asks, in a manner that's indirect and yet fully apparent in its meaning, if the president has the capacity to disband the NIA, when Sarah is put on the spot and forced to concede the truth that, yes, this is within the powers of anyone who holds the role of presidents, Daniel's pointed delivery of Good to know. Is chilling.
1: Mm-hmm. Something you said a moment ago in terms of it feels like he's actually engaging with Sarah. Mm-hmm. I feel like the important caveat to put in there is it feels like he is.
0: That's it. That's the te- it, yeah. The text
1: itself even alludes to the fact that Sarah senses and, mm-hmm. and gives voice to not inside her own mind, because this is supposed to be a uh, a journal entry and everything like that, but actually writes down that McPherson thinks a lot of himself. Mm. And even though one could characterize that he is having a dialogue in that he is hearing what Sarah is saying and then voicing his opinion about it, it feels at more than one point that even though he is responding to what she is saying. He is more interested in his own response rather than engaging with what she actually has to say. He Mm -hmm. has already made up his mind,
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: he is letting Sarah know that he has already Mm -hmm. made up his mind. This isn't actually an exchange of ideas. This is McPherson having no pretense to go on and say, This is how I think about everything that you've done up till this point. I don't like it. And Mm. if I come to power, I am very likely going to turn all of this on its head. Mm. And I have no problem with saying this to your face because Mm. I have confidence in my ability to make this goal come to fruition. I don't Mm. need to plot behind your back. I am going to plot directly to your face. And that's how confident I am Mm. in my goals.
0: It's not bravado. It's just a reasoned out assessment of the situation. Whereas a lot of the other politicians feel like they're using that bravado to sort of try to get a foot through the door. And this is someone who's kind of already cased the joint and (laughs) just has the idea of this is exactly how I'm going to do it. And I think there's no better example of exactly what you're saying about how he has already made up his mind and won't sort of leave an opening for others to sort of talk to him and maybe sort of have an attempt of swaying him by him early on saying, I will not take this position as vice president because he sees all of her reasoning for why this would be advantageous and says I'm not going to do that because that means that I have to play the ball in your court somewhat, mm-hmm. and I am going to play my game with this, not yours and, and... that
1: almost makes it makes him the perfect antagonist mm. for Thomas because mm. he establishes himself as being someone that is equally uninterested in compromise mm. Thomas mm-hmm. has kind of set himself up in this way that he is not going to compromise on the things that he finds important,
0: mm. and he's
1: not even going to, in some cases, compromise with those that are on his side. Mm. Here, McPherson is setting himself up as being someone that is not only not going to compromise his ideals or his mm. ideas in terms of the way things should happen, but that he isn't going to be surreptitious about Mm. any of it
0: and i think that's probably why he got under my defenses because the way he carries that and the way that he like the way he answers this question of are you going to be vice president there is an element to it that i find difficult not to like respect even in a sort of We like a plain speaker, yes. We like a plain speaker. And so you think, oh, we've been dealing with all of these, like, assholes. And, like, some of them are, like, coming into Thomas's office. And, like, they're completely being untruthful enough that they say, oh, I'm the person here. And he works for me. And then as soon as they leave, it's like, well, obviously he's the figurehead. And this Mm -hmm. guy is as crooked as they come. Mm -hmm. And this person is a relief from that mm-hmm. and you think, oh, and just as you sort of are happy for the change of pace mm-hmm. you start to see just because this is an alternative doesn't mean that that's good.
1: And on top yeah. of that I also just realized to myself when I, when I said a moment ago we like a plain speaker, saying mm-hmm. that is kind of deceptive to a certain mm-hmm. degree because you know who else says everything that's on his mind as soon as he thinks it? Fisher.
0: Yes, that's true. Fisher also
1: says exactly what's on his mind and does not attempt to Mm -hmm. conceal certain things because he puts our teeth on edge with Mm -hmm. every time he opens his mouth.
0: Even when he isn't, he's just going. (sighs) exactly.
1: Doing 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 that thing with his fucking nose. Mm -hmm. How the the way Alex plays that Mm -hmm. almost like as background. Just like, oh God, it's just like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Uh, the way he fucking does that.
0: It's it's definitely not within the same sort of level of like respectable fear as like Darth Vader, but it has that same like there's a. it's within the same school of like you start to associate this like audio like tick
1: mm-hmm. with
0: a unsettling element of just like uh d- Something bad is just about to happen because I'm hearing this asshole just stirring. That's it. He's just simmering. He is constantly simmering mm. and doesn't and you, care. And you wonder if he's
1: going to boil over. Yeah.
0: You. And like, he doesn't give a shit Like, what mm. like, boils over and if it spills onto other people.
1: I don't know what the over-under is on people that might have read Arlington as opposed to having listened to it. Obviously, at this point you'd need to pay money to actually read the book. And if you're thrifty, or even just prefer the audio drama, that version is readily available for free on the New Century podcast feed. But for those that have not heard Fisher's voice or need a reminder, his audible breathing feels like a combination of two elements. Both the constant idea of his anger-threatened to surge forth, as we were discussing a moment ago, as well as the idea that merely being in the presence of Thomas and Agent Lee somehow offends his sense of smell. He's fucking right. You got each of us dancing to your tune. You
0: make slaves of us all. What do you do, Mr. Fisher? I run one of the fisheries up on the west side. You know, fish by name, right? You can check our books. I have done. I help the people of our district get what they need. I'm known. I'm respected. And you're assisting Mr. Van Tassel in his campaign. Fucking A right. I want to see the dollar bought back. So does everyone out there. We deserve it. And Dutch is our boy. A Dutch. ha. Ah, yes. Yes I am. The voice of the common man. That's right he is.
1: There's even the implication, I think, right at the end that he Mm. is taken as much as he quote-unquote can and wants to leave before he does something that he realizes would be bad for him. That's how Mm. volatile he is. You get the overall impression that he is leaving with Vantash because they have made their case, and he realizes that this, to a certain extent, was a fool's errand, for his goals because Mm -hmm. he literally wants to bring about the end of this administration and Mm. is on the verge of trying to deal with the issue directly with his own two hands. So Mm. to speak, even the threat of major Butler's presence, who it would of course be the thing that he would associate as the threat. He doesn't realize that he's standing next to, agent lee who would very happily just put Mm -hmm. a knife in his liver Mm -hmm. if she decided that was the thing to do and yet the irony behind all of this is that on Uh top of all of that on top of butler's guns and lee's blades we see as a part of the story itself when thomas is taking note of fisher there is a side note of him noticing the gang leader's throat is vulnerable. And that's an intriguing detail, Mm -hmm. followed up with the um, revelation of Thomas training with Lee in the following episode. I don't think that everyone ever considered Thomas a weak man. We know that he is a soldier and a tactician, but here we see his willingness to not only increase his martial skills, but to consider personal violence as a part of his makeup. Mm. He is not simply a bureaucrat or a leader. He is someone that briefly thought about what would happen if I just decided to end Fisher's life right here. Mm. We now keep this in mind after that scene where Sarah has called him the angriest man that she has ever known, and realize that only those other parts of Thomas that tell him now is not the time prevent him from taking action right there. He is not boiling over, not like Fisher. Mm. He is more controlled.
0: Oh, completely. That detail about just all of this, with Mm -hmm. the context of thomas being one of the angriest men she has ever known which the further we get into this series the more i'm realizing that sentence is so important to just just like i'm hearing angry wendigos out there it's just like yeah fuck him up tom um but like uh but no, like, that sentence just does so much to like make you consider everything else about like thomas in that sort of way of like us going about this thinking what if we consider this a tragedy like and just like it recontextual, and makes you assess things if the story of arlington so far has been about a man we have been told carries immense anger who's Surrounded by circumstances and people who make him angry Mm -hmm. the tension becomes not only a matter of if Everything's going to fall apart under this administration's watch. It's also a question of how Thomas's anger might come out and What will he do and what mistakes might he make as a result of that?
1: Mm, Yeah, and it's here that I had a sudden further realization that I had to remove from the episode because it's tied into an element of the denouement of Arlington. It's a great talking point, but considering it might be a spoiler for a major plot element that is not revealed till several books later, I am going to sequester it to after the outro of this episode. If you have not read through Uncivil Outlaw, then please just stop listening after the music, as I will not only share our original thoughts during the recording, but the reason why it's a spoiler. Especially considering some of the additional context of Alex's history of creative works. If there's one thing that is definitely a part of the brand here at Through the Wind (laughs) Art Industries, it's that we love realizing that this is going to be important for a later conversation that we can't have right now because we're trying to do things in a linear fashion.
0: Oh, for a uh, discussing time machine. Oh, yeah. just like opening the wind door and like us, like, hey, you guys are uh, doing this scene yet? Oh, cool. Like, what about this? <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, yeah,
1: we also exactly. had
0: a thought that maybe it would have been more relevant to a few chapters earlier. Do you mind having it? Yeah, cool. We can do that.
1: <laughs> uh, the name of, of chapter 15 is specifically The Candidates, which mm-hmm. I think makes sense from a perspective of like, okay, we're introducing McPherson okay, we're introducing Van Tassel. And so from a perspective of, like, we're not spoiling anything, that title does make sense. Mm -hmm. But the title that would make almost more thematic sense would probably be something like The Opposition.
0: Yeah, I was going to say The Opponents, if you Mm -hmm. didn't have that, yeah. Because, yes,
1: they are, in theory, candidates for vice president, so to speak, but mm-hmm. that's not what they really are, as far as the story itself is concerned.
0: You could definitely make some loose arguments of like what the candidates is referring to, in the sense of like what are they candidates for, uh-huh. and you could say which one is the biggest concern right now. Like mm-hmm. that's almost like a another reading you can have on it, and I think it works. Like a, a phrase I always use. Uh, just on a day-to-day basis when like it's like a range of options of things. It's like, none of this is good. All of this is bad. Like, <laughs> just, okay, pick your poison. It's like, I... Why? Why is this all poison? Like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are the options here? Wait a second. All of this is bad for us. Always has been. <laughs> oh. uh, uh, well, okay, so... But there
0: is one... Yes shining uh, light amidst all of this. There
1: is one shining light of all of this. You've been looking forward to talking about this for a while now, so let's let's just dive right in. Chapter 16 takes us to Sean Wiley. And I would die a cruel bastard for insisting that right now is the moment at which we should stop for the week. But on the other hand, for those of you that are all caught up, there's a hell of a snack waiting for you at the other end of our musical selection for today. I waffled back and forth on one of two songs for this episode, and then after making a decision, which version of the song to use. Obviously, I have a longer history with the original version, by British pop band Tears for Fears. Given that we are both children of the 80s, and the original song was also a part of the soundtrack for the movie Real Genius, I suspect that Alex might also have a preference for the original, but the modern take on this song has a sound and aesthetic that works more for the dread of these last couple of chapters. I have a certain respect for song covers that try to do something different with an established work, putting a different spin on it, with an aesthetic and use of modern musical techniques that allow it to stand beside the original without overshadowing. Only a few occasions have managed that, such as the Bad Wolves cover of Zombie and the Disturbed cover of Sounds of Silence, at least in my personal opinion. So until next time, this is Lord with Everybody Wants to Rule the World.
0: acting
1: on your best behavior turn your back on mother nature This is the remaining bit of conversation excised from a recording two weeks ago, followed with the explanation of why it was taken out. If you haven't caught up with Uncivil Outlaw, turn the recording off. We were just talking a minute ago about Fisher being on the verge of boiling over, but Fisher's quality is more... Not that he's a an angry man specifically, although he is, but he has a, a deep and abiding hate mm. fueling him because all of his comments are about the people that are around him being unworthy of mm. the power that they have right now and that mm. he wants to cut out what he believes is a cancer.
0: It's a dismissal of everything mm-hmm. around him, like mm-hmm. and a disdain as well.
1: It, it makes for a very weird... Like, when we talk about a different kind of story, such as, say, Batman's story... I know it feels weird to bring up in context, but this is, <laughs> this is the tangent that I'm coming across. People love to talk about how Batman's rogues gallery are all reflections of him in certain ways. Mm -hmm. It's weird to think about Fisher being a reflection of Thomas, Mm -hmm. being a poisonous reflection, especially since, by and large, Fisher plays a relatively small role. He is no joker in Mm, this story. He shows up only a couple of times, and yet... Just as we were saying a moment ago about McPherson being a fascinating foil for mm. what we have known of Thomas so far, Fisher is now a, a separate reflection mm. of that. He is a reflection of Thomas's justifiable anger, put in a dark mirror, basically, and a more uncontrollable place. Whereas Thomas is all about his own control. He is about imposing order on the world, just as he imposes order upon himself. Mm -hmm. I really like that
0: observation and point you've made that we're kind of seeing Thomas's own rose gallery of just Mm -hmm. like the different things he is contending with. And it makes me think of that comment we made a few episodes back of how we are... Learning about Thomas through his connections with others, the people around him, his family, as well as just learning about those characters, like by their own merits as Mm. their own people. But I think the same also applies to just we are learning about Thomas as we see him engage with not just the people close to him, but the people that he is set up against. Mm -hmm. That those people are... The separate elements that he is trying desperately to deal with, mm. like not necessarily take them off the board entirely, though he would like relish that. Mm. It's just that he like has to deal with them. That's the problem as a sort of continued presence.
1: Well, no one rid me of this troublesome priest. Kind yeah,
0: of way. that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Uh, literally <laughs> in that early episode, uh, yeah. but the idea being that what you have is it's not just these external grievances and maladies that he's trying to cure himself of. It's the fact that there are moments of troubling overlapping Mm. qualities between them, whether it's and I use that word of quality in a sort of Mm. like not a positive sense, but just in a character Mm. sense that you do have that intense hatred for certain people that like thomas has for people of philosophy that Mm -hmm. like people with fisher's philosophy and fisher has it just for like people who don't look like him but you also have the people of just a uncompromising certainty of what needs to be done mm. with uh, Macpherson. And I'm not sure what I would take from the Amish leader in the early chapters. And he's sort of a very incidental and sort of like on the like grade mm. of like people he's dealing with, but it's nevertheless someone he's up against.
1: I think you... a reflection of ignorance, perhaps.
0: A, a reflection of uh, ignorance, perhaps, but I would say that considering that the early parts of the book are the parts that are kind of dealing with the cartographer's handbook, the Amish people are, like, preaching a way of life that they think is the Mm. way to, like, survive.
1: It's antithetical to what Thomas is trying to bring about, specifically in the cartographer's handbook. But
0: he's also preaching his own, like, this is the way that we survive, this is the way of life, specifically, Mm. that, like, is essential to our survival, that like they are incompatible, but like there is a feeling of they are both men who do not and almost cannot compromise like their ways of life and what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And yet they are forced into a position where they do actually find some sort of arrangement that is acceptable like enough, even though neither of them are especially happy with it mm-hmm. to both of them. So that that is a quality of this book that I hadn't really considered before and oh, oh, uh scene that we can't talk about where we're going to have to bring this conversation back Yeah, we're going to be talking about individuals that Thomas is up against yeah. that speak volumes about him.
1: Yes, exactly so. now this is... <laughs> While recording on some of the early chapters of Arlington... I was commenting in the Discord about some of the topics Toby and I were covering at the time, specifically in regards to the idea of the Jungian persona, the various kinds of masks that we wear to conceal the self, sometimes deliberately in various kinds of social situations, and sometimes unconsciously. The idea of the persona has come up before in Conversations of New Century, but in this particular case, specifically bringing up the word mask, might have inadvertently been a spoiler to the reveal of Mr. White at the end. Because as many people will know by now, thanks to the climax of Uncivil Outlaw, Mr. White is both figuratively and literally the mask that Thomas chose to wear after surviving the assassination attempt at the end of this story. Alex pointed this out to me in private, so I excised a specific moment during our recorded conversation where Toby used the word mask in conjunction with Thomas and replaced it with an editorial insert that served the same purpose as what Toby was trying to say. In this case, however, the revelation that at least two and possibly more of the antagonists of Arlington could be framed as being like Batman villains, thanks to them being dark reflections of Thomas himself, well, that's just entirely giving away the game there. And it kind of kills me that it took me this long to realize that the story of Thomas becoming Mr. White is, on some level, a Batman story. Especially since there was a specific arc of Batman in 2002 called Bruce Wayne Murderer that I am very familiar with, having followed it at the time. And that story arc bears more than a few thematic similarities to the story of our but if I'm being honest with myself, the parallels were always there, and I was just blind as a bat. The special armor that White wears, the fact that he focuses on criminals and the corrupt, that this identity was born from tragedy. In this very book, we see him training for this role with Lee, who goes on to be one of the few allies that knows Thomas is still alive. And the biggest clue of all is that some of the original creative works that Alex did in the audio drama front were Batman stories. Many of these are lost to time, but he did an audio drama version of The Killing Joke, had intended one of the Hush storyline that was set aside due to hate boys on the internet, and an original creative work that lives to this day on YouTube called Batman Breakdown. For now, however, this is going to be the last word I'm going to say on the subject. I didn't want to waste this valuable insight, and if I put it into story until later, it might be lost or forgotten. But I can't and won't dive into the subject of White without my partner, and we're going to tackle his character as more of him is revealed, same as all the other story and character elements yet to come on our retrospective review. Which means that the bulk of these details will be reserved until we cover Uncivil Outlaw, with even more to come during our deep dive into Stone Spring Maidens, which will be showing many things that happened with Thomas slash White off screen. And honestly, that's as it should be. It's only through these deep dives that Toby and I start to see details that we had not during our original perusal of New Century. Things that were, things that are, and sometimes, even things that Alex did not intend. That's the work of this podcast. That's the heart of it. So until next time, we'll see you on another trip, Through the Window.